0: Hello, I'm Janet Silver from Syntax Strategic.
1: And I'm Cameron Groom from MicroBix Biosystems. Thank you for joining us for Diagnostics Beyond the Lab. On this podcast series, we talk to industry leaders in the scientific and health community about discoveries, challenges, and what they see as the way forward in their fields.
0: Cameron, I'm really excited about today because we're going to talk about the human papilloma Virus or HPV vaccines, testing, and cervical cancer. And on the latter, according to the Canadian Cancer Society, over 1,400 women across the country will be diagnosed with this kind of cancer this year alone.
1: Quite right, Janet, and well, the HPV vaccines target HPV types that most commonly cause cervical cancer. They're neither, certainly not mandatory, and they don't protect against disease from all possible Oncogenic uh, or cancer-causing HPV types. So we always have to ask ourselves, you know, what does this mean, and uh, where do we go from here? Uh, and joining me now, uh, joining us now to break all this down is Dr. Larry Vaughn, Director of uh, R&D, Scientific Affairs, Integrated Diagnostic Solutions at Beckton Dickinson, which is, of course, one of the largest global medical technologies firms in the world. And also we're very pleased to have Dr. Kathy Popodyuk, a um, associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology from Memorial University in Newfoundland and a member of numerous uh, leadership committees at um, CPAC and other important cervical cancer screening initiatives. So we thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, hello. But, well, why don't we start with talking a little bit about what HPV is, the human papillomavirus and talking about a bit of its uh, health consequences.
2: Thank you. Um, why don't I start then? The human papillomavirus has actually been around for millennia, forever, well before us. And there are low-risk types and high-risk types. And the low-risk types we're very familiar with, they cause warts. Uh, the regular warts, and for the purpose of our discussion today, we're interested in genital warts. The high risk types also can cause trouble. They can get into cells, get into the DNA, embed in there, and over years go on to develop precancer and cancer in some people. And that's what we're interested in today preventing those high risk HPV types from causing problematic precancer and cancer.
0: You you talked about prevention. Sorry, Cameron. I I just want to jump in if I may, because both of my children have been vaccinated with the HPV vaccine. So when you're talking about prevention, what does that vaccine mean? And does it really protect them?
2: Well, we're very fortunate because many years ago, about uh, 1996, Seven. It's been that many years, or 2006-7. Uh, we had the development of HPV vaccines, a number of them, and they include HPV 16 and 18 types, which are considered high-risk HPVs that can go on to cause precancer and cancer. And some of them also cover HPV 6 and 11, uh, which cover the lower-risk types that can cause genital warts. More recent vaccines, the nonavalent, the nine valent, also cover five more high-risk HPV types. The high-risk HPV 16 and 18 cause 70% of cervical cancer and many of the precancers. The newer vaccines that cover up to seven high-risk types of HPV can prevent 90% of cervical cancers. And very importantly, I don't know if your children are boys or girls, uh, but boys can be affected by HPV uh, precancers and cancers. Everyone can be affected by the precancer and cancer in the anal skin, uh, the head and neck. HPV 16 can cause cancer and precancer there. For women, uh, we can have problems in the vagina and outside on the vulvar skin. And men can be affected by penile precancer and cancer. So, these vaccines have the opportunity to prevent the development of infection, precancer and cancer of these conditions. So, they are very, very efficacious. And those who've been vaccinated before being exposed to these HPV types, which often means before sexual debut in adolescents and, and teens.
1: But these are, these are great points, Kathy, and you, you touch on the diversity of types of the HP virus. and maybe I can ask Larry to supplement on that. You know, based on how many types there are, we've got these progressing vaccines that cover more types. But is um, screening and testing still necessary, Larry, in light of these vaccines? Yes, it is. And despite the fact that
3: these vaccines are highly efficacious, uh, there are a couple of factors that mean we're really going to have to keep screening for decades to come. Uh, The first is even in a highly vaccinated uh, country, and we're not one of the most in in North America here, but certainly in Australia or United Kingdom, 80 percent or so is the highest you'll get. We're in the 50s to 60 uh, percent pre-COVID down here in the U.S. So we have a gap there. Uh, Secondly, there's a there's a time lag when most, as Kathy was pointing out, most vaccines are delivered to young young kids around 11 or so of age and it takes another 10 to 15 years for them to get into the screening age appropriate uh, screening pool so you have that gap to cover so we're now seeing the benefits of the 2006 vaccine that kathy mentioned in the clinic today we will need to wait till about 2030 uh, for the, the, the nine valent vaccines to have an impact in the clinic so we've got that gap uh, and finally, even with the nine bail, it's 90%. So there's still a 10% uh, cancer uh, uh, attribution out there that we need to cover. So we, we definitely don't want to take our foot off the gas on screening. And I would add, and I'm sure Kathy would agree, since COVID, that's even more, uh, there's more urgency around that on both the vaccination side and also on the screening side, because we've had a, 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 a serious uh, dip in, in both of those uh, uh, areas.
0: I just want to back up for a second. We're mm-hmm. talking about screening. Kathy, As a woman, I've had a number of pap smears. How is that different than an HPV test?
2: Well, as we've heard, a number of countries in the world um, are arguably ahead of Canada in our vaccination rates. Uh, There's a difference across the country. I'm presently in Newfoundland, and we're very proud of our vaccination rates. They're about 94% for our school-based programs. I also didn't comment that there's efficacy from these vaccines. Even in older people who've been exposed, there still is benefit, but not as good. Um, for women, uh, pap smears are done, you know, every three years. And, uh, and, you know, you go and have a spectrum exam and you have the test done. And then the cells are looked at under the microscope. And the, the technician or the pathologist looks at the cells, and by then there are changes already there that could be precancer or cancer. And that's done every three years. An HPV test is looking for the virus. The virus, whether it's present, has it been there for a while to get in the cells? And by being positive for the virus, it picks up more uh, opportunities for, for cancer and precancer. So it picks up things earlier before they are in the cells, it identifies more women. And the test, if you have a negative test, the durability, the confidence you have that there isn't a problem and there won't be a problem is five years. And that's more confidence for women than having a pap test every three years because we know that the the durability, the confidence that you won't develop a problem with a cytology pat test is only three years but the woman receiving the test will feel exactly the same thing you're just taking a sample during a speculum exam from the cervix
1: well i think you know that covers a bit of the interval um, issue that we we should touch on and The migration of moving from looking for chain trans cells that have been transformed by the virus to looking upstream for the presence of the virus should be intuitive of everyone for everyone. But um, maybe I can ask Larry a little bit. If you're doing an HPV test that that screens for the different types of HPV, we we mentioned some of the virus types that are covered by the vaccine. but how many types of virus, high-risk virus are there? Maybe you could speak to that and, and about the different sites in the body that can affect as well.
3: Sure. Well, generally speaking, uh, most people say there are 14 high-risk types. I mean, there's been some fine-tuning over the last two years where type 66 is kind of being downgraded, but generally speaking, all the assays have 14 high-risk types in them. So those are the ones that can persist and cause invasive cancer over time. Uh, in terms of other sites, I mean, as, as Kathy mentioned in the introduction, we have you know, penile anal cancers and I think uh, and head and neck cancers. I think the two uh, most active areas of research are moving to guidance now are for the head and neck space and for the anal cancer uh, uh, area. For head and neck, I mean really there's, a, there's an epidemic now of head and neck cancer, particularly in, in white males, where we've seen a huge uptick in the number of HPV related uh, cancers in recent years. and it's now surpassed several years ago the, the incidence of cervical cancer. So actually I saw some numbers where, you know, there are more, uh, there, there are about the same number of, of people dying of, of uh, head and neck cancers now as there is of entire diagnoses of cervical. So it's about threefold more. So we have a serious issue there. And I think we're starting to see some, yeah, some, 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 some not quite guidance in the sense of, as, as we have for cervical, but there's certainly a lot more research and there's testing going on, as Kathy will tell you, it's actually, ironically, better to have an HPV-related head and neck cancer. The prognosis is better, and there's testing going on now. They want to identify if it's alcohol or tobacco or HPV, and there are different, there's de the escalation of therapies if it's HPV-related. But it's still a very serious uh, cancer and has a high mortality rate.
1: And testing, the need to test certainly isn't going away for cervical <laughs> or head and neck.
3: Right. And for, for uh, just to finish up on the head and neck, it's, a lot of it's tissue testing. There's a little yeah. sample type difference there. And there was a big study in the U.S. just published in June called the Anchor Study, which really showed that for an anal cancer has kind of very similar uh, uh, pathophysiology to cervical cancer. There's an anal path, which look, and degrees of progression like you have for cervical. So there's a pathway there to both Diagnosing from an anal pap side and also from HPV test side. So we expect to see guidance in the U.S. very shortly now that they've shown that you can actually drive down the uh, anal uh, cancer rate uh, by, doing, uh, by treating high-grade disease pre-cancer. So that's very encouraging.
1: And what about, what about access to care and access to family doctors, OBGYNs by community um, certainly we see in Canada, for example, a lot of patients have difficulty finding a family doctor. Is is this an issue in this area, Larry? And, and by extension, Kathy?
3: Sure. I mean, even pre-COVID, about one in five US women never got screened or were, were not screened on time. Uh, so that's a serious problem. And I, actually the numbers reflect that over 50% of all diagnosed cancers are in that 20% of women who don't show up with screening. So that is, a, is the problem statement right there. And that's, as I said, gotten worse with COVID. We have a huge reduction in the number of screened women and a backlog now that we will not be able to catch up quite honestly, unless we do something differently. Uh, so uh, there, is, there is a real concern there. Kathy, did you want?
2: No, I totally agree that um, the biggest issue it's not necessarily the screening test, but being to, uh, to be able to avail of being screened by someone. And uh, access to care providers right now is a huge challenge um, in my province, across the country. People can't access a primary care provider right now. And this is not something at this time that we can do over a telephone or a virtual visit. Pap smears uh, testing for cervical issues has to be done in person, I and mean, it takes time and human resources. And this is a huge challenge everywhere right now for us in Canada.
0: This brings up Kathy, your, your, the whole idea of self-collection. How important would self-collection be for women, and how would it change, if you will, or
2: shift? Um, what we're seeing now
1: and even what do we mean by the term would be important to explain
2: right Uh, very true because a lot of people don't understand what self-collection is they might think that one can get a blood test or uh, do a swab of the throat uh, looking for HPV for the cervix but nope nope still need to take a sample to self-collect from the cervix inside the vagina so it means using a tool. So some women are, are more uh, facile with tampons, uh, their own, you know, personally understanding their lower jungle tract. Other women might find it taboo to, to explore down there. So it's, it's definitely demographics of women who would be able to avail of a test where they could use a tool, be it like a little Q-tip. There are like flock swabs and tools created. Uh, to be able to get close to the cervix personally, uh, to take a sample and then to put it in appropriate packaging and send that off for an HPV test. It cannot be a cytology cell path test where someone is going to look at it under the microscope. There is no self-testing of cytology tests, that would be for a molecular, like an HPV test. So um, there are opportunities to use this type of technology where uh, we haven't been able to allow women to self-sample. Right now in Canada, there is no actual self-sampling program or testing. There are a number of pilots that have been done across the country showing that women, a a proportion of women would want this, uh, they're comfortable with this. And, uh, and then they can follow up for uh, an examination for someone to see their cervix as needed, if needed, depending on the result. So this is work in progress. It's really exciting. We believe it will be very helpful for women who are unable to avail of a care provider or just are in circumstances that they're too busy and their time commitments, they can't go out to a clinic, there isn't a clinic, and that they can have a test done to look for potentially, you know, HPV that can cause precancer and cancer.
1: That's that's a great explanation, Kathy. I know, you know, Canada—we're just starting. The first provinces are just starting to get ready to provide molecular uh, HPV screening programs, and um, you know, self-collection is, is some way away. But uh, other, some other areas of the world are more advanced on that. And, and maybe I could ask uh, Larry to comment about what BD is thinking and doing in this respect.
3: Sure, sure, yeah. It's absolutely right to say that we're a little behind, I think, in North America, but I think we have a plan to catch up. But right now, uh, the self-collected devices are CE marked. are several available in Europe. Uh, so we have a number of choices of devices. Uh, they are now being implemented into national screening programs such as Denmark and Sweden and others. So they, they've certain Australia's all added that. Initially, it'll be added at the clinic, but just to explain, that's even by itself, that's a huge add-on because you know. It's- as kathy mentioned a lot of people have have difficulty getting to a, a, a gp or, or even ogyn who does a pelvic exam this does not require a pelvic exam could be done in the bathroom of any clinic you know a, a local provider uh, so i see that that just expands the, the umbrella of coverage immediately by allowing that that uh, approval the other thing of course the end game with self collection is to be able to ship the t- kit to the home And we now have good data on, and we do. This is what we call dry collection. So there's no liquid sent to the home. The the simple brush device or swab, as Kathy mentioned, can be used, and the, the, the woman just simply self collects, puts that in a container, puts it in the mail. And the lab then takes it from there and processes the sample. And a lot of data now, uh, meta-analysis and uh, randomized control trials show that, if done properly with with an approved test, uh, it's just as effective. It's what we call non-inferior to the physician sample in terms of sensitivity. So uh, I think it's already we're already seeing that in places like Denmark, Denmark were ahead. They initially offered it to underserved women, women who were not showing up for screening. They, they, they obviously picked up more, more more cases there, and then they extended it to as an as a as an alternative to women who are in the regular screen uh, program. And not surprisingly, ladies, you 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 would agree that it's a it's a nice option. So they like to take take that option. And what they find is that they not only they do it, but they request it the next time. So it will expand coverage. And I think in five to ten years, once it's adopted, it'll become like a pregnancy test. It'll be freely available. It'll be the first line test, and then the woman would come into the clinic or to our our OGYN or our physician for a follow-up on a positive test. So I think that's the future. And it's it's going to come quickly too. And We can talk about the U.S. in a bit. bit.
0: Can I just interject for a second? Because you're talking about self-collection and a woman being able to do that from her home. But Cameron, I know that uh, Microbex has a lot of experience in this area in terms of accuracy. And from a layman's point of view, how do you ensure that Whatever you're collecting, that the test is accurate, that the controls are there, that you're not going to find yourself getting a false report, if you will.
1: Well, you're you're raising a great point, Janet, and and there are there are internal controls that are built in within tests like those by Beck and Dickinson. Um, Ensure that the instrument is is functioning properly. Where we really step in and take a role is in the whole process of what are called external controls. So, you need to make certain that the whole process of you know will the sample survive the mail and the heat? Will it? Uh, will the technician be t- take doing the steps in the right order? Will will the reagents not be spoiled? Will the instrument not drift out of calibration? So. There's a regular process of challenging with a, with a representative mimic of a patient sample to ensure the validity of that whole process. And that's where a microbics plays a role in all this, in, uh, period regularly challenging the whole test process to make sure there isn't any breakdown in the, in the, uh, integrity of the process. And it, it's, you can't overstate what an advancement this is to move from detecting cells that are already transforming or have been transformed into cancer versus looking five or more years upstream to those at risk, but it has to be done properly and be regularly revalidated.
0: I know we only have a couple of minutes left, so and we've probably got something that we would like to ask each one of you, but Kathy, I'll throw it to you first. We're talking about self-collection. How, if we're able to get down to this road shortly in Canada, how would that impact testing in Canada?
2: Well, as we heard, it probably would be able to be offered to women who can't access a health care area, a clinic, and it could be mailed. And uh, certainly in Newfoundland, we've done studies on that. Northern Ontario, BC is leading the country in studies of mailing back your sample um, for fit testing for colorectal screening—we've heard about that. The public is used to that, and that that will potentially fill a void of people who, of women who can't access to do a test and want to. So that that is very very helpful. And we also heard some women um, just you know they might need some guidance, and you could also do it in clinic. And, and that would also potentially increase the number of people who could be tested in, in clinic environments where some could be going through a, a speculum, the formal procedure with a healthcare provider, and someone could bring their cell collection kit if they needed some extra guidance also there. There's a whole a vast array of opportunities where it could be integrated into what's already happening to increase the number of women who can be able to be screened. That's the most important thing.
1: Fabulous. And Larry, what would what would the points you what points would you want to touch upon with regards to uh, the work that that you're doing and making sure we're covering the appropriate number of H B D types, uh, helping ensure that those tests are optimally uh, accurate as well?
3: Yeah, well, I think uh, we know what the types are to cause cancer. We know one of the great things about cervical cancer is we know exactly what to do, but the question is implementation, right? So I think uh, um, self-collection will be a huge uh, add-on to, the, to a robust kind of vaccination program. And I can see it being used, you know, persistence is the main cause of disease or so persistent infection of the same type is really what gets uh, women in trouble if their immune system doesn't clear it. So having the ability to add the self-collection to a, you know, to a regular screen woman who she's coming, come back and say, I'll send you a kit in six months. It really gives you, provides more information without having her to bring her back in. So I think that's important. But coming back to your direct question, how? Ha- Having that internal control and notice, knowing that the woman collected collected it uh, correctly and having the, the a qualified assay is going to be key. And, again, we've already demonstrated this in other national programs. So we do know what to do. I think there just has to be a will to get it done and to expand uh, testing. And, again, to come back to COVID, I am concerned that we will see an uptick. We're already seeing an uptick in disease in the clinic. I talked to a clinician the other day. He said, I'm doing more colposcopies. I'm seeing high-grade disease this wave's already here, and we also have the the add-on of those kids who didn't get vaccinated, who are going to be, you know, further down the line. They'll be showing up in the clinic as well with, without the adequate uh, coverage. So, we do need to act now, I think, and, and get self and rolled out
1: to uh, to uh, these people missed missed medical appointments, missed vaccines, and the hangover of that from from COVID. Sure, yeah, exactly. Cer- certainly, you know, we're we're also looking at providing services to assist uh, different provinces and different jurisdictions in their, in their implementation of HPV molecular testing and having the not just the products, but also the services to help support these great initiatives.
2: Following up on what Larry said, people have been sitting at home, not being able to avail of any healthcare. And these tests that we're talking about are not a substitute be it if you can access self-collection or so on. If a woman has symptoms, pain, bleeding, discharge, other problems, uh, that's not a screening test. She has to be seen by a care provider. So I don't want the the audience to think that that these tests are a replacement when someone actually has symptoms. This is for the well population. You know, it's exciting, but we have a lot of work ahead with COVID.
1: No, No substitute for primary care right. Correct. Great point. Thank you. Kathy.
0: Thank you. Larry Vaughn with Beckton Dickinson based in Maryland and Dr. Kathy Papaduke from Memorial University in St. John's. This has been a great discussion.
1: Thank you again, Kathy, Larry and Janet. That's all the time we have for today and uh, look forward to the next webinar in our series. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you.